Welcome to episode 83 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, family physician, editor-in-chief, editor-in-chief of Family Practice, Journal of Family Practice, and this is a special day for me. It's Val and my 47th wedding anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. Thank Hi, you. I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPalms. I wanted to comment on uh, something I noted last week, and that was the passing of Albert Bandura. Uh, uh, Dr. Bandura has often been lumped in the company of um, psychological um, uh, bigwigs such as B.F. Skinner, Jean Piaget, and Sigmund Freud. Uh, he became famous in the 1960s doing the Bobo studies, which where he took um, preschool-aged children, and some of them were exposed to violent images and videos, and others were not, and then they were invited to play with Bobo the doll and observed more violent behaviors among those who observed the violent um, images. Um, the second thing I wanted to comment on is that I've been enjoying watching some of the, the, the heartwarming and touching stories in the Tokyo Olympics, but I also wanted to point out that in just a few days, we will mark the anniversary of two horrific events that have really placed the sword of Damocles over the, our collective heads for almost the last three quarters of a century, and that's the, the bombings of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. Thanks, Henry. Always uplifting <laughs> thoughts from you, and but actually, um, you know, very important. I'm, I'm currently reading a uh, three-volume, 1,800-page um, history of the Pacific War. I'm on page about 1,200, and it uh, makes me very happy I wasn't born in 1922. So uh, let's get going on this podcast. We're going to talk about poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day in your email, plus a great primary care reference, over 800 chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Just check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators in this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. Uh, you can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to the podcast. Just go to IAFP.com, click on online IAFP education webpage and find our podcast. This week, we're going to talk about the Canadian TIA score, ultrasound for diagnosing extremity fracture in kids, CDC report on the Delta variant and how MRI reports can cause harm. Kate, take it away. All right. So the ABCD2 score is sometimes used to help assess the risk of stroke in a person who has recently had a TIA. It uses the age, blood pressure, clinical features of the TIA, duration of symptoms, and history of diabetes. That's the ABCD2 to predict the risk of stroke in the next two, seven, and 90 days. Higher scores indicate a higher risk of stroke. So the ABCD2 score has been criticized for low specificity and for not offering any additional information beyond clinical gestalt. In other words, most clinicians can just tell that an older person with uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes who presents with more than an hour of unilateral weakness is more likely to have a stroke in the next week than a younger person with fleeting vertigo. So this study from Perry and colleagues validates this new 13-item Canadian TIA score. 
It's a 23-point score and includes both clinical information and information obtained from the ED department evaluation to risk stratify patients with TIA. The clinical information includes things like symptom duration, whether the patient takes an antiplatelet med, their history of carotid stenosis, and the specific symptoms that the patient comes in with. The ED evaluation information doles out points for elevated glucose and platelet levels, whether they have an older new infarct on CT, and AFib on EKG. So to pros- prospectively validate the scale, they enrolled about 7,600 patients with TIA at 13 Canadian emergency departments, and they had follow-up data on all but 34 of them. Yeah, the average age of the patients was 68 and a half, about 50% were women. Only 50, 5.8% of them were admitted to the hospital at the time of the TIA. Patients were evaluated at 7 and 90 days after ED evaluation, and the primary outcome was a composite of either subsequent stroke or carotid revascularization, either stenting or end arterectomy, within a week of the TIA. So 108 people, 1.4%, had a stroke within seven days of the TIA, and 83, 1.1%, had a carotid revascularization procedure. And they used the Canadian TIA score to categorize about 16% of patients into a low-risk category. That's less than 1% risk of one of those outcomes. About 70% fell into this medium risk, about 1% to 5% risk, and about 11% of the cohort into a high risk, which was 5% for those primary outcomes of stroke or revascularization. So the ABCD2 score, by comparison, couldn't classify anybody into low risk and classified almost everyone into Mm. this big medium risk category. So this new score may be helpful for triaging the low risk people to primary care follow-up and the high risk folks to admission. And the middle group may get some follow-up evaluation sort of in the right sort of time frame. It does seem like it should replace the ABCD2 score, even though it's a little more cumbersome to use. It would require a a phone app or an integrated EMR calculator. So after all that, Henry, what do you think? Well, I've got a a couple of comments. First is that um, Ian Steele is one of the authors on this paper, and he and his group um, developed the Ottawa Ankle Rules many years ago, and they generally do a pretty reasonable job of trying to look at practical kinds of things. And so um, I think this follows in that um, in that genre, in that the, the ability to classify people more at, at a higher level of granularity really has some um, value. Um, my, my second comment that we've made maybe a few times previously is that, generally speaking, clinician gestalt, when we formally evaluate it, it's pretty good when we're dealing with diagnoses and maybe extreme prognoses. For example, the question, would you be surprised if this person died within the next specific time frame, six months, 12 months. But it's more problematic when we have intermediate things like recurrent events or maybe even uh, cancer prognosis. And for those kinds of things, we really do need tools to help. And so I'm reminded uh, once again of Niels Bohr, the Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, uh, physicist who made the comment, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. John. I'm struck by what small percent of these patients had one of the primary outcomes, that is either a full stroke or a need for carotid revascularization within the first seven days, total of 2.5% of all those patients. So that means that most patients with the TIA are actually going to be fine for the next week 
and you do have some time to evaluate these patients. I note also the very low admission rate in Canada. That may not be the same in the U.S., but this, this shows you, at least, I think the study shows not only that is the score a little bit better, although I would quibble about what's low risk and medium risk. I mean, less than 5% still seems like pretty low risk. Uh, it does show you that you have time to evaluate these patients. I mean, it's not, it's not a total urgency. Take the next few days, carefully evaluate these patients, and they will pretty much all do fine. Uh, although, again, applying one of these decision uh, tools, such as this new one, uh, once you get above five five percent, yes, these patients are higher risk. So, I I just get the feeling we're not going to get a lot of traction out of this decision rule. We'll see if it really is used, especially because it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, thirteen items is a lot. I agree, and and that's going to very much limit the ability to apply it unless some of those items can be just sucked out of the EMR automatically and plugged into a calculator. I also think mm-hmm. that uh, you make a great point about is what is low risk, right? You know, there are thresholds that we use for decision-making and is 1% the right threshold? Is 5% the right threshold for high risk? And I don't know. I mean, I think that's where you have to look at values and, um, you know, costs and all these other factors. And then um, the final point I'll make is that only 11% were placed in the high-risk cohort um, most were in the medium risk, which tends to be not very helpful. If you put them, lump them in that mo- moderate risk group, you know, the almost three quarters of the patients were in there. That doesn't really help you a whole lot. You know, the low risk is helpful because you can s- be comfortable no. sending them home. The high risk is ho- helpful because then you really want to think hard about admitting them. Uh, but even half of the high risk were only half of the high risk were admitted, presumably. So, yeah, I think. Uh, it raises a lot of questions, and I think it would it impact practice? Would it change decision making? That's the really key question. So, thanks, Kate, for bringing that to us. So, I got the quiz. So, which of the following are true regarding use of corticosteroids for patients diagnosed with COVID nineteen? Systemic steroids reduce mortality for hospitalized patients requiring oxygen. Inhaled steroids appear to reduce symptom duration and may reduce the need for hospitalization or urgent ED visit in outpatients with early or mild COVID. Systemic steroids don't improve and may actually worsen outcomes for hospitalized patients not requiring oxygen. And systemic steroids are not recommended for the treatment of outpatients with COVID-19. Stay tuned. Henry, talk to us about uh, ultrasound and fracture. Thank you. So this poem asks the question, how accurate is ultrasound for diagnosing upper extremity fractures in children? This was published by two and colleagues in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in June of this year. And they did a reasonable meta-analysis, searching several databases, identifying studies that evaluated diagnostic ultrasound against an external standard. Now, the external standard could have been any number of things, including uh, magnetic resonance imaging, bone scans, plain x-rays, or clinical diagnosis. So, for example, if you've got a kid who's got a 90 degree bend mid shaft of their humerus, you probably don't need an x-ray to know that it's broken. You might need an x-ray to do for other things, but not to know whether or not the the, the arm is, is fractured. So what they identified were about 27 uh, um, prospective studies and uh, five cross-sectional studies, roughly uh, 3,000 children total. 
Now, some of the studies used radiology department-based ultrasound. Um, 17 used point-of-care ultrasound. Um, and, and the variable training and things of that nature was really not necessarily described in, in most of the studies, which is an issue that we may have in application at a later time. They did some statistical jujitsu to come up with um, estimates of accuracy. The un area under the receiver operator characteristic curve is the, the, the term that we like to use. And ultimately what they found was that the sensitivity and specificity were very high, 95% um, for each, when if you translate that into a positive likelihood ratio over 20 and the negative likelihood ratio well under 0.1. So, so it turns out that ultrasound was very um, um, good at both ruling in and ruling out fractures. Now, when they looked at some subgroups, the, the elbow fractures was the place where there was a little bit of nuance. Um, ultrasound was about 96% accurate with very high sensitivity, but slightly lower specificity. So in this case, it looks like ultrasound, diagnostic ultrasound is very good at at ruling in fractures. So when, when you see a fracture on the ultrasound, you pretty much have one and maybe a little less so on the elbow fractures, but very good in other uh, locations. So there are some issues. Uh, we don't know much about the, the training requirements for point of care ultrasound. We don't know much about inter-rater reliability and some of those kinds of things, but we have other studies that have demonstrated that for most of these, a few hours of training is probably sufficient. Mark. Yeah, interesting stuff. And certainly um, POCUS is taking off and we have uh, ultrasound uh, training integrated into the medical curriculum at a lot of medical schools, a lot of residency programs. I think the key is training, adequate, you know, adequate practice, uh, seeing lots of examples and knowing when to do it and when not to do it. You know, I, I always think of the uh, experience in Korea and Japan where they started using ultrasound way too much on, on the thyroid because it's convenient. The thyroid's right there. It's just right in front of me and uh, ended up with hugely over-treating thyroid cancers and lots and lots of harm was done. So I think we always need to keep, just keep in mind when to use it, not just to use it. So anyway, great stuff. Kate, any uh, thoughts on that? Something you're yeah, teaching sure. your residents? Yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add. I think uh, I'm not as uh, I'm I'm more impressed by the LR positive of of seven than I think Henry was. That still seems pretty good to me. Not as great as the the 21, uh, but uh, not at all terrible. Better than we get for a lot of things. Uh, this is uh, I, I like it um, in general, and I think this will be something to add. I don't think I've I've done a lot of pocus for for fractures, um, so so something to to add to my training. So I'm gonna go ahead and talk about our next. Uh, it's not a poem. It's actually a summary. Uh, I wrote this one up for the uh, American Family Physician uh, COVID research briefs that Henry and John and I have been doing for the past year plus. Uh, you go to the AFP homepage, you can find a link to over 240 of those that we've been writing uh, regularly to keep folks updated on the, on the pandemic. And this one was actually a leaked presentation from the CDC, uh, about 25 PowerPoint slides. And that was the uh, Washington Post uh, published it online. And I just wanted to go over some of the key points from that presentation from their scientific staff. So this is about the Delta variant, uh, the risk of, and, and it's also about a breakthrough infection. So the risk of infection among vaccinated persons compared to unvaccinated was 21 versus 177 for hospital, 
uh, was 21 versus 177 per 100,000. For hospitalization, it was 0.1 versus 2.5 per 100,000. And for mortality, it was 0.04 versus 0.96. So 25-fold reduction in hospitalization and death with breakthrough infections compared to non-breakthrough unvaccinated infections. Uh, the vaccine effectiveness for the Delta variant they concluded was around 87 to 90%, lower for immunocompromised persons, somewhat lower for elderly persons as well, down to 70 to 75%. They note, and this was the scary part, was the r naught, the effective reproduction number, the average number of people that get infected per case was somewhere between five and 10 compared to between one and a half and three for the original strain. This is similar to chickenpox, okay? It's not quite at the measles range, but it's similar to chickenpox for infectiousness. The Delta variant also results in a much higher viral load and it's detectable for longer. It stays around longer, 18 versus 13 days was the median. Uh, risk of reinfection with Delta is higher than with Alpha, but only if the initial infection was more than six months ago. Breakthrough cases, have about 10 times the viral load of other strains. And so they are likely as transmissible uh, in vaccinated persons as in unvaccinated persons. Um, there's also some evidence from uh, studies in Canada, Singapore, and Scotland that the Delta variant does cause more severe disease. A study in Canada found a higher odds of hospitalization, about twice as high, about four times the risk of ICU admission, and about 2.4 times the risk of death. So this was, not only is it spread more easily, but it also may be more harmful. Uh, given the greater likelihood of breakthrough cases, high viral load, uh, that's led to the re recommendation for masking of vaccinated and unvaccinated persons. I think we should expect to encounter more breakthrough cases. But actually, uh, to, to quote Lindsey Graham, I'm really glad I had the vaccination because it, my infection would have been much worse. And that's the last time I'll ever quote Lindsey Graham. But, um, <laughs> I thought that was actually quite a good comment. It was like, yeah, okay, dude, you, you got it. You know, you're a 70-ish you know, year old man and, you know, you got COVID and, and you had a mild case. And that's because you were most likely because you were vaccinated. So interesting information, obviously still very early days emerging, non-peer reviewed and all that. But I thought it was uh, useful to share. John, any, yes, any thoughts? Yeah, very useful. It's uh, interesting to see that the vaccination rates, especially where the infection rate is higher, are gone up very quickly. So people are finally getting religion, so to speak, and seeing that, yeah, I really should get this shot. The other comment I'd make is that because of this high transmissibility and the speed with which it's going through the country, that this wave is probably not going to last a long, long time. And it may... Uh, bring herd immunity, in fact. I mean, that's the other, if, if there's any silver lining in this, which I think there's not, but I think because it's so transmissible that we may hit, quote, herd immunity, at least get out of the epidemic stage and then get into the endemic stage of COVID, which will last the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah. And the, that herd immunity will require a higher percentage uh, because of the, the r not. If you take the if you assume that the R naught is at mm -hmm. the low end, even a five, you need 80%. If it's at seven, you need 86%. If it's at 10, you need 90% uh, to be immune, to, to achieve herd immunity. So it's higher now with that increased R naught. Kate, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I um, I love that this is like a cross between WikiLeaks and essential evidence. And that's how we're, <laughs> we're getting our data now. I really appreciate that that's how our science is now happening. 
uh, yeah, I, I mean, it also has implications, right, for people who can't yet be vaccinated, um, you know, children especially, uh, and and their their impact on on the infectiousness of the whole population. Uh, and I think that's uh, obviously coming to a head in terms of recommendations that we make as the school year is about to get underway. Um, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how our public health officials take that into consideration, um, especially, again, for the uh, school year is really beginning to, to get started in the next 10 days or so in a lot of places. Um, so we'll I'll be interested to see what happens there. Uh, and also, it's uh, beginning to see in the news uh, the difference between the Pfizer recommendations for a second or a third dose of, of vaccine and uh, what the CD, how the CDC is interpreting that that information um, with what you're saying about the the efficacy of the vaccine in um, in different populations. So uh, a lot of interesting things that are going to going to continue to come out as we learn more. Yeah, interesting in a bad way, but interesting. Henry. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really tired of this. And so I just would like to misquote or paraphrase Henry VIII's statement about Sir Thomas More. Can someone not rid me of this troublesome plague? We're all ready for that. John, you've got an interesting study about MRI and low back pain and how we communicate with our patients. I couldn't resist this one when I saw it summarized as a poem. Here it is. The clinical question that this study is trying to answer is this. Are patients reassured by negative MRI imaging findings for low back pain? This was published in the European Spine Journal in March 21st of 2021. This was a randomized trial, not not a large randomized trial, but big enough to get some results. The researchers enrolled 44 patients who had chronic back pain who didn't have any red flags or indications for surgery. So these are more common variety chronic back pain. The patients then were randomized either to be told that their routine MRI was, quote, completely normal and all findings were incidental or age-related, or to be read the actual report that could include these terms such as degeneration, tears, ruptures, etc., which, you know, sound bad. All the patients were then prescribed six weeks of just basic conservative treatment for their low back pain. The pain scores at baseline, that is when they had the MRI, were similar in both groups. They were about five to six, and even after getting the MRI results, but were significantly lower in the all-normal group, that is, they were told all the findings were normal uh, after the six weeks of treatment. In fact, they decreased 2.4 points, and the pain scores actually rose slightly in the patients who received the actual red results, up to 6.2. Patients who received the actual report had a decrease in their, quote, pain self-efficacy questionnaire, that is, their, their ability to handle the pain, And they also had a decrease in terms of their functional status as well. So although the differences were not large, they were meaningful differences. And the conclusion that I draw is that reading patients the nitty-gritty of all these abnormal findings really discourages them. It doesn't help them. It catastrophizes their illness, whereas letting them know that these are typical findings for patients their age uh, really reassures them and they feel better. So it, it is very important uh, how we share test results with patients. Kate, what do you think about the study? Yeah, this isn't the first study that we've had that basically says, you know, that tests that we do to reassure, reassure ourselves or our patients don't 
they don't they don't reassure us and they don't reassure them. Right. Um, so, and I think that the other takeaway from this is that words matter. So the way that we you know either counsel people or the way that we follow up on you know these these sort of what, what we interpret to be normal for your age or um, you know normal normal considering the way that we tell people that that the the results especially considering that most of them can can go into their chart and they can read them for themselves we have to follow up and sort of say yeah but this is normal um, mm-hmm. and i like that expression normal with age related findings um that's a that's a nice way to to put that henry yeah sometimes i used to tell patients oh there's just a little bit of wear and tear nothing more than what you would expect over time or with your you know your history and things and and you're you're right kate that um the reports are just words but words have important meaning um and, and symbolism to patients especially when um they are often fearful of the worst um you know this this phenomenon is in part you know when we are asked to interpret uh, test results. There's sort of the Bayesian side, the pretest probabilities and the post-test probabilities and things of that nature. But then there's the meaningfulness. And, and this is in part why I just hated it when one of our nurses would come to me and say, hey, so-and-so is on the phone and they want you to rep- uh, interpret this report, this test report that was ordered by one of your colleagues. When I had absolutely no context whatsoever, I wasn't aware of whether this was be- being done for screening purposes, for monitoring purposes, or uh, or for a specific diagnosis. And and so I would, uh, unfortunately, uh, at times would result in potentially an an unnecessary office visit for a third party to uh, re- interview the patient, find out circumstances, and then place this into the appropriate context. So I think there's a lot of, of uh, common practice around covering clinicians, and we just have to be very careful, uh, especially around test interpretation of how we go about doing that. Yeah, and plus not knowing the patient and how they're going to respond to this information, I think is really important. John, you did one of my favorite studies of all time, and I quote it all the time when I'm teaching, uh, that calling an acute lower respiratory infection a chest cold results in less desire for antibiotics than calling it acute bronchitis. And so just another example of how uh, words matter and how we communicate with our patients. Uh, We're going to wrap up soon here with the quiz answer. So which of the following are true regarding use of corticosteroids for patients diagnosed with COVID-19? First option was systemic steroids reduce mortality for hospitalized patients requiring oxygen. That's true. They are uh, by far the best proven therapy for these patients. Uh, Inhaled steroids appear to reduce symptom duration and may reduce the need for hospitalization or ED visits in outpatients with early or mild COVID. Several studies have shown reduced duration of symptoms. One showed fewer hospitalizations and urgent visits. Two of the studies haven't been peer-reviewed, though, um, given... Uh, the the ser- potential seriousness of COVID and that the harms are pretty minimal of using uh, inhaled steroids, I think that's really something we should consider. Uh, systemic steroids don't improve outcomes and may actually worsen them for hospitalized patients not requiring oxygen. That's true. The large trials that have been done, the recovery trial, found strong trends toward worse mortality in less ill hospitalized patients given steroids. And then finally, systemic steroids aren't recommended for outpatients with COVID-19. And you guessed it, that's true as well. Oral steroids are great for the second phase of illness where inflammation is the problem, but they can suppress the immune system when given systemically in the early phase, which which isn't good. So the answer is all of the above. 
I think we're going to call it. I, I was going to recommend a book, but I'm Ian Toll's Pacific War Trilogy. I already recommended that. I want to thank everyone for listening today. Uh, here's the Earl for obtaining CME credit, IAFP.com. Click on the online IFP education webpage. The IFP is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half AMA category one credit. They adhere to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read our complete disclosure on the AFP website. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. We certainly did. Please tell your friends about primary care update. Like us, friend us, tweet us, whatever you want to do. Instagram us, make a TikTok video. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.